That's the last chapter of that book. And I want to teach about learning to live with God, learning to live with the presence of God. We know that Exodus being the second book of the Bible, it is the fulfillment of the prophecy God gave to Abraham. He told him that his seed would go into Egypt and be there for 400 years. The book of Exodus brings us to the conclusion of that. And the Lord told the children of Israel after he redeemed them that they're going to need to belong to him. And he said, in having a relationship with me, I want you to build me a house of worship. So the second half of Exodus is about that house of worship. I want to read verses 34 through 38 so that you will see how God guided them and directed them. And then we'll make some further statements as we go along. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now you'll notice then that the cloud represents the presence of God. It was visible during the daytime, and as the scripture says, the fire was visible at night. So there were two representations that God used in order to signal to the children of Israel that the presence of God was there. This is essential because if God cannot manifest himself, then the children of Israel won't know who to follow and they won't know where to go. Well, you, you've got to be able to imagine the scene. Imagine a beautiful tent that is in the wilderness and the presence of God descends on that tent throughout the day so they know that their God is in their midst. And then when the sun finally sets, there's this glowing, fiery, radiating presence that illuminated the night for the children of Israel. Now, all of us have seen a fire that burns in the dark of the night. And you know it is captivating, and it's, it's somewhat attractive. So imagine a tent that had some kind of fiery presence attached to it, and you were one of the Israelites, and it didn't matter if it was 2 o'clock in the morning and you woke up and stepped outside of your tent to go to wherever you needed to go. You look up over there at that tabernacle, and that fire is still burning as a symbol to let you know God's presence had not left you. We need to know that as Christians, that the king doesn't leave us as long as we're on our journey. And if you love God and I love God and our hearts are aflame with a passion and a fervency for God, then I should know that in this wilderness in which I'm traveling, that the Lord is with me. He's taken every step with me as I go. You may feel alone, but, but that doesn't mean you are alone. Once the, the cloud was taken up, as it said in verse 36, a new journey began. 
whenever God wanted to signal to them it's time to move on, then the cloud ascended and it started moving off in a direction. The Levites were tasked with tearing down the tabernacle and assembling all the materials, preparing them to be carried. And they were also tasked with the assignment of setting up the tabernacle. If the cloud went up and then went that direction, imagine if all the Levites would have then took all of the furnishings of the tabernacle and then headed in the opposite direction. It is possible to have the furniture, to have the implements, to have the facility, but at the same time not have the presence of God. And the one thing we need to have is the presence of God. You can replace a tent. You can replace the spoons and the forks. You can replace the Ark of the Covenant, but you can't replace God. And, and as Christians, our, our goal in our gatherings, whether it's a Wednesday night or a Sunday, when we come together, what should be very important to us is the presence of God. How do we learn to revere it? How do we learn to recognize it? How do we embrace it? And how do we allow God to have his way in the midst of his people? Notice then in verse 38 of Exodus 40, the cloud was there by day, the fire by night. Everyone saw it and it said it was throughout all of their journeys. A change in geography did not change the presence of the cloud or the presence of the fire. Wherever they went in the wilderness, God was there. So the question is, do you believe God is with you wherever you go? Do you believe God has been with you in your journeys, in your travels? I know when we get on the road, we very oftentimes pray prayers like this. Uh, Lord, we're on our way to this particular location. Uh, we're praying for traveling mercies as we go. Well, I'm, I'm assuming you actually believe what you're praying. And if you believe that, you should understand that when your car goes rolling down the road, that the same cloud that was upon the tent is the same cloud that abides upon you wherever you go. Now let's go now to Numbers chapter 2, and I want to show you something else that I think is essential. Numbers is the fourth book of the Old Testament, and it is called Numbers because Moses was required to count the number of eligible men of war and citizens, and he started doing the counting in some sort in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, verse number 1 of Numbers, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house, far off from about the tabernacle of the congregation. If you've ever seen a picture of the tabernacle, then you know that it was established so that it was in the center of the nation. The tabernacle had four sides. And on each side, there were three tribes. And Numbers chapter 2 tells us where those tribes were. So beginning with verse 3, it talks about the east side of the tabernacle and those that were there. 
And then in verse 10, it talks about the south side of the tabernacle. Now, what I want to emphasize here is that all of them were in the same proximity of the tabernacle, even though they were all in different locations. And the Lord was equally distant from one tribe as he was with the other tribes, but he interacted with all the tribes in the same way. The only tribe that was not placed in the camps of the other 12 would have been the Levites. Because their ministry was given to the tabernacle, they were camped between the tabernacle and the 12 tribes of Israel. So there were the tribes here, then you had the tabernacle, then you go a little bit further, and then you had the Levites going all around that tabernacle. Well, I think that we, we want to remember that the Lord himself is the one who established the design for this. Now, later, when they moved into the promised land, Moses and Joshua told each tribe, here is the parcel of land that you have for your big tribe. But the Levites, they had to live within all of the lands of the 12 tribes because the, the Levites, their ministry was to have ministry in the temple. They weren't allowed to own any real estate. And they were just to give themselves continually to God. The Reubenites couldn't go into the tabernacle. The people from the tribe of Issachar couldn't handle the things of the tabernacle or the temple. Only the tribe of Levi. Now this is why in, in older years, or I should say in former times, this is one of the reasons a lot of preachers used to didn't have homes. Churches would build parsonages. And then the pastor would stay in that parsonage. And then if he was there five years, two years, or 20 years, he'd live there. And then after he moved out, going to his next place of ministry, then they usually had a parsonage also. That's on the principle of the tabernacle. The issue with that that became difficult, as some of you will know, is that you could have had, and you certainly did have, and still do have, preachers who give 40 to 50 to 60 years of their lives preaching the gospel in different states and for different churches, living in different parsonages, and then they turn 70 and they don't have a place to live because they've given themselves entirely to ministry. And of course, denominations and churches typically didn't look toward the future in that regard for a pastor. So he had or she had to just try to figure out what in the world they were going to do. And then pretty soon you had denominations start building uh, senior care facilities for pastors and, and, and all of these kinds of things. Here's the point I'm trying to emphasize. The Levites gave themselves specifically to ministry. They didn't go to war. They didn't do anything else. They handled the things of the tabernacle. And that is exactly pattern in the New Testament too. So the 12 apostles, they said to the believers, they said, pick out some people that can do some of these things you're talking about while we give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I, I'm fortunate, Tiffany and I are fortunate that we pastor people who, who uh, from the, the beginning of us being here, wanted us to do full-time ministry and and were able to help us to do that. And the good Lord made a way for that to happen. But there are a whole lot of pastors out here, as you know, they don't get to do that. And I have a whole lot of friends that are bivocational. 
And, and I don't know. To me, it's a wonder how in the world they're able to do that. You know, work eight hours and still try to prepare messages and visit the sick and do weddings and baptisms and, and, and everything else. But, but with the schedule that we have, when I share it with people, they just kind of look at me and say, I don't even know how in the world you have time to breathe, you know. But, but we've never allowed... Um, We've never allowed the work of the ministry to cause us to be offended at serving people and doing the work of the ministry. Now, the Levites, they had to handle blood. They had to handle sacrifices. And I'm sure there were a whole lot of them that each time they got up and go to the tabernacle, they were tired of cutting up animals. They were tired of smelling blood. They were tired of putting on all those fancy robes. But that's the calling God gave to them. And they had to abide in that, you know. Well, there are a couple of things I just want to mention about this tabernacle that's, that's important because of how it was centrally located. And the first is this. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was a very holy and sacred place. And you know the story of Moses when he approached the burning bush and the Lord said, Moses, stop right there. Take them shoes off your feet. So the ground you're standing on is holy. Well, the tabernacle was holier than that. Yeah. The tabernacle was definitely a holy place of God. And when we come out to this tabernacle, I don't want you to believe that God lives in any of the nuts and bolts and wood that, that is assembled around. Hey, God lives in you. God lives in me. And the scripture says, wherever two or three are gathered, the Lord said, I am right in the midst. It is his presence that makes what we do holy. So how we interact with God is important. So the next thing I want to say about that is, since his tabernacle is a holy place and it's his dwelling place, his desires in his house are the only thing that matter. Do you know if I come to visit you at your home, I'm subject to you in your house? You realize that? That I can't come into your house and do whatever I want? I don't think Terry would be happy at all if he came home one day and I was having coffee with the wife and I just took my socks off and he came in, had my feet all up on the couch and was just having the time of my life. He probably wouldn't be smiling at all. If he was smiling, he'd still be saying, I wish this pastor would go home. You know, I wish he'd go home. Well, <laughs> well you, you see, when, when you go into someone else's house, you're subject to them. If I go preach for another pastor, when I go into that pastor's church, I'm subject to that pastor and to whatever rules and regulations that are there. When I'm visiting folks in the church, I don't go into anybody's house and try to tell them what to do. I'm the visitor. It doesn't matter if I'm the pastor. Your house is your place of abode, and what you do there is your business. I'm just happy to be there. Now, occasionally, I might go into Dorothy's house and give her a few little rules and orders and commands and things like that. But, but that, that's only because Albert gave me a little permission. But, but other, uh, other than that, when we come into the house of God, we're subject to his rules, his grace, his love. And only what he desires is what matters. Since it was a holy place, it was to be treated that way. So you never read any stories about any Egyptian or Assyrian priests that were in the tabernacle performing any rites or ceremonies. Never. But you will find today 
that there's an ecumenical mind in many preachers. They don't mind trading pulpits with a Jewish rabbi or a Muslim imam or some kind of an elder from a Mormon church if it means it'll produce unity. Now, through the years of preaching, I've had a number of invitations where people have said to me, uh, we're going to have a service and we're trying to get as many preachers involved as possible. And we'd like to know if you participate. Then I'd say, well, tell me a little bit about some of the ministers going to be involved. And they start naming people from different religions. And then I just say, oh, no, I think I'll decline. And they say, well, no, we want to pr- present a, a show of unity and a good front in front of the people. I said, well, whatever you may present, it may seem like a, a show of unity to you. But to me, it's utter confusion. I can't be involved with that and represent my people that way. Now, years ago, after 911. There were Christian preachers who opened up their pulpits to Muslim preachers so that they could come in and explain their religion to their congregations. And then some of the Christians were able to go into the Muslim mosque and explain Christianity. Well, I don't know what what you may think about that, but I can tell you this. There's just absolutely no reason on this earth to have an unbelieving person of another religion up in a pulpit trying to talk to us about their religion in the sense that they're trying to evangelize us with their good news. Understand? God would have never tolerated that in the tabernacle because it was a holy place. He was trying to make the children of Israel different, unique, distinct, exceptional, so that they wouldn't be like the surrounding cultures. There used to be a guy on... uh, Fox News named Glenn Beck, and he was a Mormon guy, very popular but conservative. But he had um, a big gathering one time in D.C., and it was a rally where thousands of people showed up. And and I remember when it was time for him to speak, and I can't remember what the rally was about, but I knew it was a conservative rally. But up there on that platform, you, you had... Uh, Baptist preachers, you had Catholic priests, you had Mormon uh, elders, as I said, you had Buddhist people, Hindu people. I know I saw somebody dressed in a Wiccan outfit. And of course, then you had Jewish people and so on and so forth. But all of them presenting themselves as if they're believing the same thing. But I thought to myself, why would people, in order to identify with a particular cause, make it seem as though we all believe the same thing and we have the same God when we do not, you see. The temple and the tabernacle was a sacred place and it was a holy place. You never find David saying to any of the Hittites, get your choir and your singers and bring them on in here and we'll let them do praise and worship for us. Never never had that. Now, we, we have to be very careful as a church to keep our eyes on God because in, in our desires to see growth and in our desires to see the move of God, if we're not careful, we'll get our eyes on the things of this world and we'll start trying to imitate them. It, it comes about in an easy way. Now, I want to give you a scripture on that. Go to 2 Kings chapter 16, and I, I think you'll find this quite interesting. There was a king by the name of Ahaz, 2 Kings chapter 16. 
and Ahaz made a trip to Syria. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. It says, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, that's his priest, the Israeli priest. He sent to him the fashion, the measurements of the altar, and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Now notice what happened here. Ahaz went to a foreign country, saw a foreign religion with a foreign piece of furniture in, used in the worship of their religion. And he said to his priest, who was the priest of the Most High God, he said, look, I saw something over here I think would be great for Israel. Doesn't matter if it's pagan or heathen. Here are the measurements and you do it. Now what the, king, what the priest should have said to the king was this, absolutely not. I am not going to get in trouble with God trying to follow your decree. But no, he got the carpenters and the blacksmiths and everybody else out there, and they put the thing together. And so by the time the king came home, look at verse 12. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. The king approached to the altar and offered thereon. And he burnt his burnt offering, his meat offering, poured his drink offering, sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. He brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the house, between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side. So what's the next thing that Ahaz did? He started acting like he was the priest. See, it's important for you in your walk with God to stay in your own lane. And not get in somebody else's lane. Stay in your own spot. Stay in your place in the road. You've heard some people say that, that the safest place is in the middle of the road. That's a lie. Yeah, you, you find a good two-way two -way highway or two, you know, two-way highway around here. You put your car in the middle of the road, see if it's a safe place. Yeah, you'll find it's not safe at all. Oh, you, you're going to cause an accident. Well, the, the king, he saw something in another religion. He brought it into the church. And then he started trying to act like he was a priest and he wasn't a priest. And I've met a lot of people that aren't preachers. that try to get in the pulpit and preach. I've met a lot of pastors that never should have ever been given a church. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't call them pastors. I should say a lot of men, women, that never should have been in the church. And, and things that enter into a church normally get into that church through leadership. It can't get in there any other way. Somebody has to say yes in order for it to get in there. You know the story of the Trojan horse. People wanted to defeat Troy. Them Greeks had all them vessels out there in that water. They were looking. People in Troy, they were locked up, had that big wall around it. Couldn't get in there. But the Greeks had an idea. They said, you know what we ought to do? They said, let's build some kind of an instrument that we can supply to them as a gift offering. And they'll receive it, and then we'll fool them. So that's what they did. They built a big horse, and they left that horse outside the gate. Then they all went back, got into their boats. Then the boats sailed all the way around the mountains so that they were no longer visible. And the <clears throat> people of Troy looked at that, Notified the king, said, there's something wonderful out here. You ought to see this thing. They said, well, maybe they brought it a gift. It's a peace offering or something. They said, bring it in here. So they rolled that thing in there, and they looked at it. Wasn't too much they could do with it. 
It didn't move. So after they were done looking at it, everybody went back to what they were doing. They finally went to bed that night. And then out of the belly of that, you had some men that were in there. And they created it with some latches from the inside. And they just unlatched it, came out, opened up the city gates. And in came the Greeks who hadn't gone anywhere but out of visibility. And they came right back and came in and destroyed the city. And I'm telling you, that is a parable of what has happened in many denominations and churches. We looked at something that we thought was beautiful. The world said to us, if you introduce psychology in that seminary, it's going to help with the counseling of those people. And then we brought that Trojan horse in. And then the world looked at us and said, look, if you just if you help, let, allow us to bring our consultants into the church, we'll tell you about how to handle your verbiage, how to grow your church, you know, get rid of words like sinner, don't mention the cross, stay away from that blood stuff. Don't mention much about the sacrifice of Christ. Talk about his goodness, his ethics, his love. Talk about that. We brought that Trojan horse in, and then out of the belly of that came so much of what we see right now. And we wonder now why our nation is in the predicament that it's in, and the church in many ways is anemic, is powerless, and you have people sitting in churches every day who are crying and weeping because of what the church has become, or they're not crying or weeping at all because they're totally numb and indifferent to it. Don't even care anymore. That Trojan horse came in, and this is what King Ahaz is doing. He said, build the altar. I've sent you the measurements. Now he wants to be the priest. You can see in verse 14 and 15, he then rearranged the original furniture that God had established. Move the altar around. Yeah. And a lot of churches get rid of that. I had some people showed up at one of the services in one of the other churches. And they told the people in the church why they came. And they said, you know, one of the reasons we came is Pastor Darrell in preaching. I can't remember the last time I seen somebody give an altar call for salvation. They said they couldn't even remember the last time they saw somebody give an altar call for salvation or have an altar call to lay hands on people and pray for them. He said, they said, now the churches we go in, the pastor, he preaches, and then he's done. He just sends everybody home. You see what, what has happened? We've reconfigured the house of God. Things that once were important are no longer important. Things that should not be prioritized are made absolutely significant. And the switch has brought about the kind of lack of discernment. And we have, we brought on to us, brought on to ourselves now, the kind of church that God would never approve of. Because it wasn't what he established. He wanted a holy place, a sacred place, where his name could be glorified and where people would come and be able to worship him. That's what he's after. Well, let's move on. Let's look at something else here. In Nehemiah, I want you to go there. Now, that's just after your kings. In Nehemiah chapter 13, I want to show you what happens when we ally ourselves with the things of this world. The Old Testament teaches that the Moabites and the Ammonites should not be in the house of God 
or involved with the service of the house of God. In Nehemiah 13, beginning with verse 4, you can see what the priest did. It said, Before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied, allied unto Tobiah. Who is Tobiah? Well, from chapter 4, verse number 3, we learn he's an Ammonite. And he was one of those obstacles trying to keep Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. He did everything he could to stop that man from fulfilling the call of God on his life. And here he is now, friends, with the priest of the Most High God. Look at verse 5. So the priest had prepared for Tobiah a great chamber, that's a bedroom, where before time they laid the meat offerings and frankincense and vessels and tithes of corn, the new wine, the oil, which was commanded to be given of the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time, well, let me just read verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem, and I understood that the evil that Elisha did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Can you see what happened? He not only became friends with this man, he let the man move into the house of God. So it's not, it's not just that they have a relationship. He brought that man into the temple, the man that God said shouldn't be in the temple, and he gave him a bedroom, set him up so that he could eat and sleep and live in that place. And those are the very things that God says we shouldn't do. So we keep our eyes open. We, we pay attention to what's taking place, and we, we try to, to keep God's house pure and clean, not because anybody in here is perfect, none of us are, but to the best of our ability, how can we maintain the kind of spiritual atmosphere and spiritual climate that the Spirit of God, if he wants to give an utterance in tongues, he can. If he wants an interpretation or a prophecy, he can. If he wants to minister a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, he, he can. If he wants to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in a wonderful way, he can. But you have to have the right kind of environment in order for that to happen. Now, you, you've heard me for years talk about this, but it, it used to be quite normal and natural in full gospel churches for people to believe uh, like this, but it's, it's much more rare now. But, you know, you, you'll find today that if some uh, R&B singer or rapper or rock and roll singer or country western singer who gives their career to performing for the world, the flesh, and the devil... If they decide they want to join a church and start singing gospel songs, there are a whole lot of Christians that will applaud them for doing that. I've just never been one of those. Same thing with actors and actresses who, who perform in the kinds of films that no good Christian could ever even watch, but yet come into a church and they're celebrated because they give a whole lot of money to the church. But here, here's my thing. If, if redemption is anything, it ought to redeem you out of sin. And whoever it is that's singing it, why is it that I as a preacher have to live a life that is separate and holy to preach the word, but a singer doesn't have to do that to sing the word? See, the plan of God has always been 
for anybody that handles this book to not mishandle it or to handle it deceitfully. He didn't want anybody to do that. And when uh, I went into a church many years ago down in Louisiana to preach, I, I walked in and they were playing across that, uh, that, that sound system. Uh, Elvis Presley sings the gospel. I thought, oh my, this, it's going to be quite the service here, I tell you. And, and, and sure enough, I got up and preached and ministered the word and had a good service in that Assemblies of God church is what it was. And, and, and God fell down in that place and, and, and Spirit of God was moving. But <clears throat> here was my first thought when I walked in there. Okay, now what is there in this man's life that would have ever led, him, led them to believe that because he's singing about something holy that that still makes it holy, you see? But, but I understood it and I understand it because it, it has, it has the, so many people today in its clutches. But I'll just finish by saying this. It, it doesn't matter how many people or who we have sing Amazing Grace. There's nothing amazing about that grace if it doesn't change your life. You see? If, if it doesn't cause you to change how you live, then there just ain't nothing amazing about it. But if it does cause you to reorient, and you're moving from pressing your way down, down into an eternity without God to climbing Mount Zion to be with the king, then that's what makes grace amazing. And in that tabernacle, I can promise you, there would have never been a time where God would have said to somebody who was a worshiper of Baal all throughout the week, because you have a beautiful voice, we want you to come in here and perform for us as an entertainer. Oh, no, God isn't interested in anybody's talents for entertainment he's interested in a heart filled with passion for him and when he looks into your heart god the father wants to see one thing he's not interested in whether or not you can play a clarinet blow a flute or whether or not you can play every kind of guitar you can think of he wants to look into your heart and see a reflection of his son's face and if he sees that that's where holiness is see he's pleased he, he's pleased with that so in, in verse, verse number seven, you can see where e, 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 Tobiah had a bedroom in the house of God. The leader let him in. Look at verse eight. It grieved me sore. That's what Nehemiah said. You ever seen things in, in, in a house of God that grieved you? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, Nehemiah didn't even ask Tobiah for his permission. He just walked into the man's room and started carrying out all his, his uh, furniture and everything and just started throwing it right out the house of God. He didn't ask the priest if the priest was happy. How would you like if somebody came to your house, and just, or, or not to your house, but if you had a house in somebody else's place or room in somebody else's place and they came in and just started throwing out all your stuff? You'd be offended. I bet you Tobiah was. But Nehemiah went in there. He grabbed the lampstand. Started walking out, didn't care what anybody thought, tossed it outside the temple precinct, went back over there, got the chair, and then he came right back, tossed the chair out. Eliah, Eliaship, and Tobiah probably were screaming and yelling, might even been calling them names, but they never tried to stop him. Never tried to stop him. Because they knew what he was doing was right. So verse 9, he commanded that they cleanse the chambers, and they did and brought again the vessels of the house of God. 
He said, now that we've got this unclean man out of here, let's fumigate this place and get it all cleaned up. And once they did that, you can see in verse 9, 10, and going down further, that the people of Israel started bringing the offerings back to the house of God. Every church I've ever been a part of or every church I've ever attended where I've had to talk to preachers and they talk to me about how the money was down and nobody gave, I always ask some basic questions and usually stem from something happening in that church and people weren't given. Because once folks perceive that that church is no longer a house of God or a vessel given to God, but it's something carnal, and it's something used for entertainment, then the people start thinking, I don't want to support that. These people aren't even involved with missions. They don't even care about evangelism. Why should I give to that? Then the money goes down. But somebody comes along and you kick off the board, the man that owns the gas station but's not born again, but they got him on the board because he owns a gas station and has a little bit of money. You get rid of him, then everybody in church all of a sudden is saying, yes, let's get back to doing the things of God. I've seen many pastors work very hard to hold on to one family that isn't worth much of anything in that local church. And then holding on to that one family, you keep seven other good families from ever really doing what God wants them to do. But you let that one carnal group disappear. Then the presence of God is able to manifest one more time and people can do this or do that. I remember back when Tiffany was working for Head Start, there were some people asking her one time, uh, do such and such go to your church? And Tiffany was like, yeah. And they said, well, we, we'd love to go, go to that church, but we know so-and-so, and, so, and they're just, just as carnal as can be, you know, and just mean-spirited and all, all of this, this kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I got to thinking about that uh, through the years, and, and it's amazing the testimony we can have with people outside the church, that people do pay attention to how we live, outside the church. Now, I, I realize with, with me and the way that I teach, it's more of a love-hate relationship, you know, because the only people that really come around any of the churches that I pastor are, are people who don't mind direct speech, plain speech, and just really, really want to hear the truth. But, but there are a whole lot of pastors that are not interested in truth, but they are interested in people. But they just don't want to proclaim the truth to those people. And Elisha, he was quite happy with Tobiah because it didn't bother him that Tobiah was an Ammonite. And he didn't mind the children of Israel coming and bringing whatever offerings they wanted to bring whenever they brought them. But Nehemiah was consistent. He said, here's what the law says. That man is a sinner. He shouldn't be in here. And we need the children of Israel coming in here with their offerings because this is the house of God. And we should be consistent to the best of our ability. I don't want to be hypocritical in anything and neither do you. But when we come through the doors and we come in here, no flesh ought to be magnified in his sight. No flesh. It should be all about, all about the king. So let me just give you a couple, couple of more things <clears throat> here uh, with regard to the tabernacle and the children of Israel. Uh, I told you that it was placed in the center of all the tribes, uh, equal distance in between them. I want you to know now that the children of Israel had a number of festivals and feasts throughout the year. And all of these festivals and feasts tied the children of Israel to the house of God. So that throughout the year they were having to keep going back. 
keep going back. And each festival brought to their remembrance something God did. Now, the reason that is essential for us, because it teaches us that the house of God should be the center of our life. It should be the center of our life. There was a time in the history of this nation where I would say most Americans had some kind of affiliation with the church. But I think you all would realize that's not the case today. I would say that probably 75 years ago out here, probably eight out of every 10 families you knew probably had some kind of connection to a church or a family member had a connection to a church. But you can look around now, you find a whole lot of people hadn't been in the church in their lifetime except for a wedding or a funeral or maybe a first communion or baby dedication or, or something like that. But, but there was a point in time where the house of God was central to what took place. So like in how I was raised, there was a Tuesday morning prayer meeting. There was a Wednesday morning ladies Bible study. There was the regular Wednesday night Bible study for everybody. There was an early morning men's breakfast or gathering. And then you also had a Thursday night service. You had a Saturday prayer meeting. And then, of course, you had Sunday morning service, dinner on the grounds after church, and then you had Sunday evening service. When you have services like that and people committed to services like that, then you, got a, you create an entire culture for the people in the church and for the young people in the church and older people in the church, and people are plugged into what's taking place. But you know what I see more and more and more and more? I hear more and more pastors saying, we can't do a Sunday evening service. We can't any get anybody to come. And out here, I hear pastors all the time say, I couldn't hold a midweek Bible study, even if I wanted to, couldn't get anybody to come. I said, well, can you get one to come? Say, yeah, well, teach for the one. See, teach for the one. The, the point is... The church isn't the culture, or I shouldn't say it isn't the center of many church folks' lives today, like the tabernacle and the temple was. You know what's the center today? The school. School. Because now kids will go to school at 5.30, 6 a.m. in the morning, go to the weight room and do practice. Then they'll do their regular classes. Sports are so important now, they'll shut down the school day so that the students can go to a, uh, a sporting event. But if you said to the principal and the superintendent here in Red Cloud or anywhere else, if you said, look, our church is having a revival, we want you to shut down all of eight period service so we can get the kids to come out, have a prayer meeting. They'd look at you like a calf looking at a new gate. And they'd have confusion on their face like a bumblebee flying in a snowstorm. They said, what in the world are you talking about asking us to close down eighth period class just so some young people can come together and pray? Because most people that are in leadership positions in these secular entities, they themselves go to churches where the church isn't at the center of their own life. The presence of God very often isn't even in the churches. It becomes more of a social thing. How can I be connected with a lawyer? How can I be connected with this person who runs the city? How can I be connected with this person who has money? 
when the key should be, I'm going to be with people who are the house of God, how can I be connected to him? See, that makes it holy. That makes it, that makes it sacred. Yeah. So uh, these, these festivals tied the children of Israel uh, to, the, uh, to the Lord. I want to just give you one more thing. If you go over to Hebrews 10, and I'll make this our, our final verse, but Hebrews 10, and let's look at um, verses 23 through 25. And these are familiar verses, I know. Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 25, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Our role in the time of the end or in these last days is not to create fewer services, but to spend more time with one another. I'm not saying we've got to have a church service every night or every other night. I'm just saying, as a Christian, you ought to want to spend more time with Christians. Yeah. Have them over for dinner. Go out for coffee. Sit and talk about the things of God. Sometimes in doing that, people who don't know anything about God will then want to come and ask you questions, sometimes in fellowship with you. But even in Paul's day, from verse 25, you had people that had already picked up the habit of not gathering with the saints. Saints are going to have a potluck, dinner on the grounds, covered dish meal for all the families. And somebody says, I don't want to go because I don't want to be around all them church people. See? Yeah. And, and then there, there's some people who are Christian, they'll say things like this. I, I would go, but, you know, I, I'm just not the kind of person that can just eat all the food made by other people. Really? But yet you go to a restaurant, sit there at a table or in the booth, and you can't even see the food being made for you. And you sit there and gobble down everything that they make for you. Or go to a grocery store and purchase for you materials that's been harvested or resourced from who knows where. And, but yet you can't eat somebody else's food that they place in front of you because it wasn't made by your wife. Really. Or your husband. Really. But there are a lot of people like that. I'm, I'm just saying... That, that when it comes to the house of God, anything that opens up the opportunity for fellowship, I want to be there. I want to be there. Yeah. You call me at 5 o'clock in the morning. You say, Pastor, let me tell you what we're doing at our place tomorrow morning, early in the morning. We're having French toast and bacon and sausage, and we want you to know if you're there at 5 a.m., you can have as much of it as you want. I'll be there at 445 with a smile on my face. And if, and if Chris calls and she says, look, Pastor, I'm telling you right now, we're doing some of those delicious potatoes that you like, that I put all that season and stuff on there, and we're going to have that. We're going to invite several families. We're going to get together and just talk about the things of God. And if you're there by 12, 15 for dinner, Pastor, you can have it all. I'll be there at 1130 in the driveway. Ready to fellowship. Well, you, you might be thinking, okay, well, Pastor, does fellowship always have to revolve around food? No. No. Just 95% of the time. We can, we can do other things. We can pray, you know, occasionally fast. We can sing some songs. But there's something about people sitting together with a cup of coffee or with food just relaxes people and folks have a good time. 
I don't know what it is. Just They just have a good time. But it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Come on, let's stand. Praise God. We are the house of God, folks. I didn't even get that far. The first Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, we're the temple of God. You've been bought with a price, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this evening that in the middle of a week where we know there's all kinds of warfare that we're all engaged in, you saw fit to allow us to come out and fellowship with the saints one more time. And we are so happy that we rolled over and had life in our lungs this morning. We pray that you continue to lead and guide us and bless us and direct our steps. And bring us all out here safely when we gather again in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen. <laughs>